Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, game, ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. And we are here with Dr. Jeff Carroll. Welcome. Hey, we're glad you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and our listeners can hear my wonderful co-host, the entertainer, the improv actor, the home inspector, Jordan Baker. Yeah, I switched careers since we last talked. Yeah. So for our listeners that have been keeping up with us for our, our like, you know, five loyal listeners that have been listening. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan used to be a butcher. Butcher. Yeah. That's what I say. <laughs> but he has moved away from that. So, I mean, we're talking about biology. You used to be a butcher. I mean, it's all related. Yeah, same, same. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I like to think. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to talk about lots and lots of stuff. But before we even do any of that, I like to ask our guests, like, how did they get into science? Like, what was the thing? Which hmm. I actually read your Wikipedia page. Dr. Jeff Carroll. Did your homework. Yeah. And just to let our listeners know, um, Jeff is also a professor at Western Washington University. We also know each other through our children. Not where we have children together. But <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but my child and his children do kickboxing together. So It's a small town. It's a small town. So he knows... He knows Brooke, Whoa. who is also from Linden and was in our past episode, Kinesiology. Whom my children only refer to as ma'am. Yes, yes. As they should. Yes. yes they should. <laughs> I'd yeah. be scared. Yeah. So those loyal <laughs> listeners, you just heard Brooke in kinesiology, and now you are you have our connection. Yeah. So um, how did you get into science? Uh, I wasn't really scientific as a kid, honestly. I grew up, it wasn't really pushed on me. I just went to public school, and kind of nobody nudged me in that direction. You know, my parents never really pushed it, and they were pretty distracted with their own stuff, and I sort of Based on that, like around junior high, I kind of stopped taking school very seriously. Actually, we just found my ninth grade Sequoia Junior High School transcripts. Uh, and they're this full was in the Northwest. You grew up in the Northwest. Yeah, I grew okay. up in Kent, which uh, I'll say. And, uh, <laughs> just like an anonymous stop. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, based on like not being that into school and my parents having issues, I kind of drifted away from school generally. So we just found my transcripts and they, uh, they're they really funny because like they're a weird mix of like I got like an A plus in AP computer science because I loved computers as a kid and then like an F in honors English. And I'm thinking, who signs up for honors English and then gets and an, gets an F? F. <laughs> and then no, even like a C. No, F in eighth grade. I mean, you have to try pretty hard in eighth grade honors English to literally get an F. And the note from the teacher was shows no interest. I started a program called called Running Start, which is like a way that uh, you can leave high school and go to um, university early. I um, also did Running Start. I left Jordan behind. And yeah, I was like, well, screw you. You he, have to be in Linden by yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of people left me behind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but that's a different topic. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I, just, I started running start and I got very distracted. Again, like, I loved being in college, but I wasn't ready. I didn't have the discipline or whatever. And so I kind of um, I kind of got in some trouble and I had some issues going on in my life where I was like had to really think about what I wanted to do. And my friend and I decided the most punk rock thing we could do to like get out of Kent, Washington, was to join the Army, which was like obviously none of our friends with like giant mohawks and nose rings or whatever we're doing at the time. It just seemed really rebellious. And we joined the Army together, uh, my friend Owen and I. So, you know, we walked into the recruiting station and Owen had this like, 
like 12 inch high Liberty spikes that were dyed red. And I had like this 10 gauge circular barbell through my nose and this Sergeant Randy Quaid, whom I still remember from Texas stood up and like, you could see him salivating and he was just like, come on in boys. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so he, he convinced us that we were going the right way. We joined the army and I, I left. And so obviously that was the end of any kind of school. So I left when I was 18 to join the army and was sent to training in South Carolina and Georgia. And then I got my, f- my first duty station, which was in Fort Lewis, Washington, <laughs> Because you, you wanted to come back. Right. So I said, I always say, like, only the army could look that deeply in your soul and just screw you. Like, because <laughs> right. they could have sent me, I had people in my unit went to Australia, Korea, Germany. I was the only person of 200 that went to Fort Lewis, Washington, 20 minutes from home. And you're like, I really wanted to go literally anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah, I was 20 minutes from home. And so I was also like, I was, I was 20. No, I was 19 and then 20. And so I couldn't even drink. Like, you couldn't even go out to the bar with like my army buddies because I wasn't drink, legal, legal drinking age. So you I started. going to Canada. Well, so I started spending my weekends in <laughs> Vancouver, which I didn't even know existed when I was a kid, right? I just like didn't find out about it until I was a grown up. I was like, whoa, there's like not just space between Washington and Alaska. Um, yeah, we lived on the border, so we yeah. could see. You could, you could see Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went up. I started going up there on my weekends and met uh, met a girl, and then I got then I got orders for Germany, which is what I had always wanted, but it was just random. And uh, went to Germany, lived in Europe for three years. My my girlfriend, my Canadian girlfriend at the time, Megan, decided to visit me in Germany. And uh, when she visited, we decided like, hey, this would be awesome if we could like live here. But the army won't let your like girlfriend live with you. You have to be married. And so we're like, hey, let's just like shack up and get married, and then we can like travel. You know, we can stay together. We can travel Europe. We can... not that I didn't want to marry my wife, but like the idea was <laughs> <laughs> me gonna here listening. I'm sorry. Sounds so magical. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know what? You know what we should do? Let's just get married. Let's just do. I, this. Apparently, I literally proposed by saying, I think it's best we get married. Actually, wow, yeah. that's fancy. She'll tell you that story. <laughs> So then I so I was in Germany. I got stationed, and then that was kind of around the time when the Kosovo War was happening, mm-hmm. and uh, we knew that my unit was on call to be the peacekeeping. So we either had to, my unit was on call generally, so we either were either going to be the ones that invaded or the ones that uh, went in for peacekeeping. They didn't know what was going to happen at the time, so they were like there was bombing and there was an air war, and then I was on leave while that was happening, and we went home. And my dad, which is weird, cause my dad and my mom were divorced, but my dad sat my like new wife and I down at the kitchen table and said like. Not only uh, is your mom at risk for this brain disease, Huntington's disease, um, but she's actually starting to get sick. Megan had literally never heard of it. You know, it'd be like if someone said, you're sick with blah, blah, blah disease. Like Megan had no frame of reference. And it suddenly like crashed back down on me at that time that like my grandma, who had been like not in my life when I was a kid, she she was in a nursing home. It was always kind of those vague family stories of like, why is she not around? You know, there's like kind of probably we should have put things together, but kids don't, you know, they just believe their parents. And we got told my parents were really religious and they said, oh, you don't have to worry about it. We, we got a blessing from the church and everything's fine. And I was like, you know, you're a kid, you don't question. Yeah. And so then I realized like, oh, my grandma has it. That means it's genetic. That means, and I, I think I probably even knew somehow that it was like 50, 50, which is the genetics of the, of the disease, which is that the children of offspring, the offspring of people rather who have Huntington's disease have a 50% chance of themselves having it. And if you have it, it's not like you're a carrier or whatever, like everyone who gets it dies. Um, so it's a fatal neurodegenerative disease. And so I, at that point was like, oh my God, I gotta learn all I can about this. Went back to Germany. We got, soon got sent to Kosovo later that year. Megan came home to Canada because there was no point sitting around waiting for me. And uh, I, I, when I was in Kosovo, was basically, we were peacekeeping, luckily not fighting. And there was nothing to do, like literally nothing to do. Like, 
walk around and check the wire again and then like try and find something to read. And so I started, they, they were actually giving free like correspondence courses to the troops who were deployed. Like, thanks America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I took biology 101, like as a correspondence course there yeah. in Kosovo, I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to try to figure this stuff out. And, you know, I finally realized like, I, this is not enough information for me. And so then I got out of Kosovo, had done, learned a little bit, but decided that when I got out, I would go back to college. Uh, my wife lived in Vancouver. We loved Vancouver. She had a condo there. So we went to Vancouver and I, I applied for UBC. They admitted me as a philosophy major, like barely. And then I like talked my way into a, f- a first year science program. Like, so you take calculus and chemistry and physics and math, you know, everything and biology 101. And um, by the time I like, they figured out I didn't have any of the prerequisites. I was like pretty far into it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and awesome. so it was a really not cool year, but I just kind of like clawed my way through and it was better than Kosovo and it was fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so then I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll keep taking classes till I kind of know what's going on with my mom. And then I'll like, you know, go to law school or something, get a real job. I just kept liking it. One of the like, literally one of the world's foremost experts on Huntington's disease, both on like a biological level, like how does the brain go wrong in this disease and on the clinical level, like taking care of people with Huntington's disease is a guy named Michael Hayden, who's been at the University of British Columbia since like our early 1980s. So you're just luckily that this dude is like right down the hall. Totally. So I started working for like the world's foremost Huntington's disease expert when I was in like junior and university. It just turned out really lucky that way. That is quite the story. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got into science. Yeah. (laughs) It took a war. It took like family history. It was like a pretty minor war. It wasn't really. (laughs) Oh, people from Kosovo, don't listen to this. (laughs) And, And that's what I like about your your story because I myself am a hypochondriac. Like I will get very, very stressed out and I will think the totally not true things are happening to me, like my fingers hurting, so therefore I have finger cancer. You know, right. stuff yeah. stuff like that, which is ridiculous. So like even hearing your story, there's even some anxiety in myself, but for some reason your story because like you're really tackling it. Like you're you're learning about it so you can fight it. And there's some sort of like I don't know, inspiring thing. And I mean, that's a kind of a cheesy word, but I mean, like, I don't know. It's like a very warrior scientist yeah, and I mean, tactic. That's I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that, but I don't usually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I started I started that in that mode. Like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to yeah. go, like, go in there, and I'm going to be the one guy that changes the field. And then you get in there, and you realize there's lots of smart people working really hard on this. Right. And, like, the people around me were, not that they are no less motivated than me for, like, personal reasons, but, like, Scientists generally are pretty motivated people, and especially yeah. people who work on diseases, because they tend to meet the people that they're researching. Right. right. And so even if they're not connected to these families, nobody works on Huntington's disease and doesn't get connected to families. And so, you know, with any amount of time, Huntington's researchers are very committed to this stuff. And so once I realized, like, you know, my connection to the disease is not some unique thing that I can drive this forward, I, I kind of had a, like a grad school crisis, which I think everyone does like halfway through grad school when you're like, I don't even know what my thesis is and I hate everything. And, you know, this is a lame way to not make any money. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I went in and I told Michael, my supervisor, I said, I'm going to, um, I'm going to quit and I'm going to move out to Pender Island in the Southern Gulf Islands in BC. And I'm going to like raise sheep. He was like, I understand that you're frustrated. <laughs> Go to Pender and like buy a sheep, but like just commute into the city a couple days a week and we can like work it out. And like I did it for, you know, like weeks and I was like, farming sucks. <laughs> it's a really hard job. Yeah. I literally didn't farm. I probably didn't even have a garden out there. I don't think maybe yeah. like a potted plant. I just realized I wasn't what I was going to do. And then I kind of had this, this crisis. I had just had kids and I sort of realized like, you know, this sucks that I have Huntington's in my life, but like I have to do something with my life. I've got to like have a job. And so I really spent like 
significant amount of time sort of just thinking and being like, well, I like science and I seem to be like, okay at it. And like, why don't I just keep doing this until like, it's not the right thing to be doing anymore. Um, so it started as like, yeah, I wanted to be this like inspirational figure. And now it just became like, this is an awesome job. And I love doing science and educating people. And like, that's a pretty good thing to do every day. So awesome. So we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll kind of get into like, what is Huntington's disease and like, what's happening to the brain? And like, what do we know about it? Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking to Dr. Jeff Carroll about neuroscience and Huntington's disease. It says here uh, in your Wikipedia, we're now calling it HD. Yes. Don't you think that it might get lost in some translations? It's true. With nowadays with the high definition it's televisions. Tr- it's true. It's like totally obvious to me that's what we're talking about. And I get really confused when I'm having conversations with people and they're like, Talking about resolution or whatever. Right. Like, I don't yeah. just, what? Well, yeah. 1080p, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you could give us a good description about what is the disease, like what causes it and uh, what happens. I mean, people have known since, I mean, since 1872 that there are certain families that have this tendency to get the, the Greek word for it is Korea, not like the country, like C-H-O-R-E-A. And it, it means dance in Greek, and it's like a writhing dance-like movement. So neuroscientists call it hyperkinetic because it just means you're moving too much. And so you'll see people, and they look like they're kind of twitchy or like they're adjusting too much, but they're doing it like way, way more than normal. And by the end stages, they're like often like flinging their arms like in, like without control. Like they have this incredible movement they have no control over. You know, less appreciated then, but um, more now. There's also, in parallel with that movement problems, there's uh, there's cognitive decline. So people's thinking ability goes down in lots of ways, like their memory, what neuroscientists call executive function, which is like uh, your top-down control over your own actions, like stopping yourself from yelling at your kid or whatever, that kind of stuff. There's mood disturbances. So people get depression, they get apathetic, anxious, and all of those things happen a lot more in people who have um, the mutation and the, and ultimately the disease. So um, it's pretty rare. It's a relatively rare disease. So it's probably about forty-five thousand patients in the United States, and so it was known, you know, since since then, since the late nineteenth century, that there was this subset of families that had this genetic propensity to have these kind of symptoms, but nobody really knew why. It's called Huntington's disease after George Huntington, the guy who wrote that paper in eighteen seventy-two, describing it. So obviously, as as sort of genetics got figured out more and more, people started realizing, well, okay, it's we can look at the pattern in the family and we can say, okay, is it like a recessive trait so that you have to get two mutant copies or does it happen more often in boys or girls? So we can say it's linked to like a sex chromosome and none of those things are true. So Huntington's is what's called an autosomal dominant disease. And autosome just means it's not on one of the sex chromosomes, X or Y in people. So boys and girls are just as likely to get it. And dominant means that you only have to have one bad copy of the gene to get it. So unlike sickle cell anemia, where you have to inherit two mutant copies, one from mom, one from dad, Huntington's patients usually, almost always, in fact, just inherit one mutant copy from either mom or dad who's sick. And so if you inherit that mutant copy, those bad symptoms happen to you, they progress, they get worse and worse. And then within about 10 or 15 years from the, from the beginning of those movement symptoms, people die. 
as far as we know, there's there's nobody in the world that's had this mutation that didn't die from the disease. It's what geneticists call a 100% penetrant, meaning that everybody who has the mutation will have the disease. You know, other diseases, sometimes like you could be at risk for it rather than actually getting it. But for HD, the gene is, is totally predictive. And it wasn't until in 1984, a group of researchers in Boston, actually, it was the first human disease gene that was what we call positionally cloned, meaning that instead of saying like, oh, it's in your gene somewhere, we could say it's on the short arm of chromosome four, right? There was, it was linked very early to, to a specific region of a specific chromosome. In that day, you could say, okay, well, we can test with some amount of error whether you're likely to have inherited the mutant copy from mom or dad before you get sick. And it wasn't perfectly predictive, but it was that was kind of revolutionary. And it took 10 more years of like walking down that little neighborhood of the chromosome using the kind of primitive genetic techniques they had at the time, which they developed. So they weren't really primitive. They were cutting edge then. But it took them 10 more years to find the specific gene. And so now we sort of like self-referentially call that gene the Huntington gene. And they found a, like a spelling mistake, actually an expansion of a, a natural sequence that's there, um, sort of a genetic stutter. And if it's expanded beyond a certain threshold, you'll you'll absolutely get Huntington's. And in that first paper in 1993, when they identified the gene, they were able to say, like, look, we've looked at, like, I don't know, 600 Huntington's patients or something. And every single one of them had this mutation. And not one of the people we looked at that didn't have Huntington's have the mutations. Perfectly predictive. So that revolutionized everything because from then on, like, theory from conception, you can test anyone from an HD family. Uh, legally, nowadays, we're, we're only allowed to do it to people who are 18 or over. But... In theory, there's literally no more mystery. It used to be like, oh, you know, you look like Uncle Nick, so I think you've got the, you know, right. the disease. <laughs> wow. But like, and it wow. left all this like shame and controversy within families, and all that just kind of went away. Unfortunately, people don't use the test very much. Um, my whole family has, but um, most people don't. So yeah, that's the kind of symptoms or that the characteristic thing is that motor, the motor disturbance, and then all the other stuff that goes along with it, and and it progresses towards death, unfortunately. I watched the short video on the Wikipedia page for Huntington's disease. And at first I was like, okay, I get this. I get what's happening. And then it just went off into like so much terminology that I didn't understand. And I was like, okay, well, there's cartoons. So I'm just going to keep on watching. <laughs> hopefully I get it. I hopefully I get like one every 20 words. Yeah. Um, yeah. It sounds, I don't, I don't know much about like diseases or anything because a home inspector. But Parkinson's isn't that where you lose control of your body how similar is that to yeah no it's a really good question so actually parkinson's and huntington's disease both result from degeneration of the same part of the brain it's sort of different little subparts of that same structure but the same loops the movements are a little different so in parkinson's disease people have like a tremor right like just really fluttery hands and, and that tremor isn't like a so it doesn't look like real movement it just looks like static you know like white noise the movements people do in Huntington's disease, it almost looks like little fragments of what we call intentional movement. Like, oh, I meant to reach for you know this cup or whatever, but it's just random. And instead of being tied to like, I wanted to achieve this goal, it just happens. But then they find themselves with their hand extended towards nothing and then they like fling it back to their body and that like leads to this kind of writhing, dancey movement. But the part of the brain, uh, in particular, a set of structures called the basal ganglia are the, are the same ones that die in both of those diseases. Basal ganglia. Yeah, you learn something every day. <laughs> One thing about the difference between the two, one important difference between the two is is 100% of Huntington's disease is genetic. So everyone who has uh, what I'll call maybe HD from now on. Yeah, HD <laughs> That's fine. Everyone That's who fine. has we HD has a genetic mutation in a specific gene. In Parkinson's disease, about 85% of the people who have it do not have a genetic mutation that explains it. They just got unlucky or they had some environmental insult or something that we don't understand, kind of like 
lots of cancers where there's sort of rare genetic forms, but then there's also most people just get it. You just get unlucky, and that that's how Parkinson's is. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. I'm Jordan Baker. Today we're interviewing Dr. Jeff Carroll, neuroscientist. Has there ever been two Huntington carriers, I guess we'll call it, mated? Yeah. And had a child? Yeah. So in genetics, that's called a... So when I said that almost every Huntington's patient has one mutant gene, in genetics, we call that being heterozygous. And it means you've got one good copy from one of your parents and bad copy. What you're talking about is if uh, two Huntington's patients had a baby and that kid unluckily inherited a mutant copy of the gene from both parents. Yeah. That, that's called a homozygous patient, so somebody who has both mutant copies. That does happen. It's super rare. It happens more in places where there's, like, really tiny villages where, like, people live. So there's a couple isolated communities, one in um, around the shores of Lake Maracaibo in northern Venezuela. There's a massive hot, really high incidence of Huntington's disease. Mm. Some northern California, way up north in Quebec, there's some villages where there's what we call founder effect, and there's sort of like a lot of people there that have it. And so from those communities, we have some, like maybe tens of patients that are what we call homozygous. The really weird thing about them is we have no idea why, but they're no worse than you would expect if they had the same mutation, but only one copy. That's one of the only human diseases I know of that has that, that truth, and that's a very weird thing. Wow. So the little video that I was talking about before with the cartoons talked about the more generations there are that have the Huntington's disease, the, the earlier the onset of these symptoms will happen. So I was thinking when you were saying that about having the, the two parents, having the two genes, does that mean they get it, the onset of the symptoms earlier? But you're saying no. No, no. I mean, we don't have like that good of math here because we only have, you know, we have many right. thousands of people who have one mutant and only tens of people that have two. But as far as we can tell, they have onset exactly when you would predict from the severity of their, their one mutation. So, yeah, that, the phenomenon you're talking about is something called anticipation, which is it happens in other genetic diseases, and it's the tendency over time for people to get the disease earlier than their parents did, which leads to, like, an obvious, like, conundrum because, like, on a population level, then, like, eventually people will get sick so early they won't have kids, and, you know, that population will die out. And, in fact, that would happen. And, in fact, there are people who have really severe Huntington's disease mutations that actually get sick as a kid. So I was just speaking with a, with a neurologist in Seattle about a case of a kid who died around the age of six, like died at six, um, and had a really severe mutation. That, that, that stutter that I talked about was like stupendously large, and that's just unlucky. So that happens generation to generation, but obviously there has to be like an input to that too, right? If people are getting sick and kind of aging out of the population. And, and previously, so when I learned undergraduate genetics in 2003, I got taught about Huntington's. They use it as an example. And they taught us, by definition, that to have Huntington's, your parent had to have it because it's that dominant thing, right? So you have to get it from someone who has it. And that there was no what they called new mutations, meaning someone who just showed up and had a mutation and no mm-hmm. one knew what. And we've, we've learned subsequently that's actually not true. If it was true, that anticipation thing you're mentioning would, like, no one would ever – they'd just be gone. Right. And what we found out now is actually – 
I don't want to freak everyone out, but <laughs> now that we've <laughs> done this show's <laughs> Please do. Please do. And spoiler alert. Go ahead. There's, there's like a little uh, sort of intermediate range of that stutter that will never cause the person who has it to get Huntington's, but it can, in rare but not totally rare situations, expand when their egg or sperm cells get made, mm-hmm. a process called meiosis. And and that can lead to their kids getting Huntington's, leading to what we would what we would res, what we would perceive as a new mutation, right? Like somebody's parents not sick, but they just showed up in the clinic, mm-hmm. and that was supposed to not happen. And when the people who have the biggest databases of patients looked at this, they realized as many as like ten percent of the the people in their databases are like verified to have new mutations, and they were wow. like, well, "How the hell did that happen?" So they then we start going to like other genetic databases that we have now of like thousands of you know people who showed up for like a cardiovascular genetic study or whatever. And we took all these like other DNA people you know just from the general population and sequenced their Huntington gene and found that the what we call these intermediate alleles, right? These like not disease causing but potentially expandable um, mutations happen in as many as like four or five percent of the population. So even if Huntington's all the Huntington's patients were to like die would still happen, right? It would still come in. And oh. this is depressing. No, it's like fascinating. Yeah. I don't know. I just like, this is awesome. Um, it's not awesome. It's bad. It's sad. It's very sad. But it's just, as a scientist, it's just super interesting. I wanted to um, possibly ask you about the areas. So you were talking about there was like Venezuela, there was a there was a hot spot, and then there was another hot spot in Northern California. Where are these regions that you talk about? So George Huntington, this guy who wrote this paper talking about the disease, he was a he was a family physician. Um, he was a really young guy, like early twenties when he wrote. It was like his basically it's like med school graduation project kind of. But his father and his grandfather had been physicians. So he had like three generations of like experience and they lived near the Hamptons, which I don't think was the Hamptons then. I think it was just some villages on Long Island. And they had seen these families and they would have had to have seen them over generations to realize some of the patterns that he picked up, which is that it's sort of a weird story, but the that writhing like really high intense uh, intensity random movements the korea it's called used to happen a lot there's like a, if people get rheumatic fever which is one of the diseases we like mostly got rid of here there's a there's like an autoimmune thing that can happen after you get it and it it attacks that same brain region and so you get kids yeah. like 6 months after they had rheumatic fever would like show up with like this twitchy weird movement that would sometimes go away and sometimes not so it was used to that as a symptom but uh, it took a lot of like acuity to realize that this there was a different set of that same symptom, right? Like people who got it in the family, people who got it later, um, and that was his kind of great contribution. The interesting thing about the the families that Huntington studied, though, was they they were in this place that that turned out to be kind of interesting in different ways. So it's it's very close to a, a huge molecular biology lab called Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, which is a really prominent, still prominent molecular biology um, like research lab out on, on the shores of Long Island. They do a lot of marine biology, but also just fundamental molecular biology. It's currently headed by Jim Watson, the guy like Watson and Crick Watson. Oh, wow. So it's like a, it's a big deal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Watson and Crick, you want to? You wanna... Nope. Yeah, no. No, Let's okay. just move along. Okay. <laughs> what? Sorry, that was they can, go- they can Google it as yeah. they... Listen. No, it's, it's a big controversy. It's a good story, actually. Uh-oh. I I will hold my tongue about Jim Watson, but uh, yeah. he he's and not, Crick, he's not a great guy, <laughs> okay. he, a little racist, yeah. <laughs> a lot racist. He and uh, Crick co-discovered the structure of DNA. So the double helical structure of DNA was described in the fifties by them and the woman that they that they totally ex like out of their research. They're like, we did it, not her. Interestingly, Crick racist and sexist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Crick, the other guy, went on to um, become a neuroscientist. 
he like figured out DNA and then he was like, okay, that's done. So now what's, <laughs> yeah, go. and he, he didn't just become a neuroscientist. He became interested in consciousness, which we aren't that good at as a neuroscience yet. So he yeah. spent the rest of his life. Cause he's like, critic. I was like, I can do whatever I want now. Like, yeah. So well after Huntington was there, uh, like in the early 1920s and 30s and so on, it, there was this big movement in America called the eugenics movement, which was this idea of uh, like, right, like, well, uh, un- they, thought they-, <laughs> they thought they understood genetics, right? And so they're like, well, let's like use this to purify the race or make a master race or whatever. And right. they, you know, which they- is, you know, you're the next step. It's obvious. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is why we're here today. Right. Because right. <laughs> they failed. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I always say that, like, they knew as much genetics as, like, the alchemists knew chemistry, right? They right. just they had this, like, some kind of phenomenological, like, oh, I can track pedigrees, but they had no, <laughs> right. like, right. understanding of, like, even what a gene was. So the eugenics thing was, was linked to that lab because the sort of intellectual leader of the eugenics movement in the United States was a guy named Charles Davenport. Um, who was a professor at a little place called Harvard. And then he took over the Cold Spring Harbor Lab and went there and founded um, what's called the Eugenics Record Office. Mm. And it was basically like the American like database of people with genetic disease. And he went out. He actually had his secretary, of course, go out. <laughs> a woman who's not on his paper. <laughs> go out. <laughs> And Undocumented ca- worker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like catalog, and they used Huntington's as like a paradigm example. And they went out and they mapped all these Huntington's families. Like just, they weren't like killing them, granted, but they were like mapping them. And he wrote, he wrote up their results in the PNAS, which is still like one of the top journals in the world. His paper was basically like, well, here's this obviously dominant trait. It's very easy. Just don't have babies with those people. And his last paragraph is like, I'm really surprised those people just don't stop, you know, marrying. And, you know, in a time when, like, you had to get married to have sex, like, right. good luck with that plan, buddy. Right. <laughs> like, so, yeah. And that was so that that was right there. So we're talking like tens of miles, I don't know, wherever, but like Long Island's big, but on the same area as where George Huntington saw those families. So, yeah. So I don't know that it's a hot spot, but it's a place with a lot of history. I love that story. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to probably talk more about like the future of what we can do for this work. But also, how is your field portrayed in pop culture? Hmm. Perfectly, I'm sure. Yes, right. absolutely. Welcome back to Spark Science. We're talking um, to Dr. Jeff Carroll about Huntington's disease. We're talking about neuroscience. And what I wanted to ask is, like, what is exciting about your research and about your field right now? And what are you doing? What kind of research are you doing at Western? So, you know, the fact that Huntington's disease is a purely genetic disease gives a, gives you, like, some hope, right? You're like, we have this. So if you look at other more common brain diseases like Alzheimer's disease, they have a really hard time coming up with therapies because by the time you recognize someone's sick with dementia, they're like pretty far progressed already. Right. And in Huntington's, we don't have that problem. We can identify people, as I said, from like when they're a you know zygote or whatever. Like we can pop off a cell and test it. So we have this benefit that we can we can treat people. In theory, we can treat people before they get sick, which is obviously the goal. And the other thing is that because it's a, it's what we call monogenetic disease, so a disease caused by one gene. 
there's we have various technologies now and have since well the early 90s actually of selectively reducing the the activation of individual genes so you know you're born with 25,000 or so genes but not every single one of them is on in every single cell of your body right like your your brain cells make brain genes and your toe cells make toe genes and you know they turn on whatever set they toe need genes. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that too I don't know anything little cozy about, toe gene. <laughs> I don't it's know like, anything about biology and I'm like you know the arm bone and they're like ugh <laughs> I may be slightly paraphrasing but yeah <laughs> But basically, like, so you can turn on and off genes, and we know a little bit about how to sort of hack that system and cause one particular gene to not be turned on anymore. And that, that's what's called a gene silencing approach to therapy. Like, okay, well, let's give people a drug that we don't know what else this whole gene does once it's on, but, like, let's just turn it off. That's, that's advanced a lot. There are some of these that are just – they're finally being in the clinic. So there's a company, Ionis Pharmaceuticals, that's in Carlsbad, California. I've been working with them for a long time since grad school, and they have a um, they have a drug. It's un- a little unfortunate in that it has to be delivered into the spinal fluid because it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. <laughs> so, Go on. And in you know in in monkeys and in all the other animals, we've tried it, and when you when you deliver their drug, it does what it's supposed to do. It, it gets throughout the brain. It you know rides around the spinal fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid, and it, and it goes into all the brain cells throughout the brain, and it reduces the Huntington gene. And in every animal model we've ever done that with. If we give them a mutant Huntington gene, they get sick. If we give them this drug, they get better. Hmm. Um, so Huntington silencing or Huntington lowering this this approach uh, is the most exciting thing for sure. And Ionis, after you know a decade and a half of work on this, almost a decade of work, has what's called a phase one human trial happening right now. And so phase one is like it's, it's technically a safety trial. And so it's not really to see whether the drug works or not. It's just to like put the drug in some people and see if they're not, you know, they don't die unexpectedly. And <laughs> in this case, because the trial is so like invasive, right? You got to get a needle jab in your spine. The FDA, yeah. rather the regulatory agencies in Canada and Europe, which is where the trial is happening, let them run it in Huntington's patients. So they at least get a tiny bit of data. It's not enough people to see much, but it's it, it'll be at least some data from people as to whether we made certain markers in their brain get better. Um, and there's a lot of excitement about this. And that trial should finish, I think, in 2017 is they're done collecting data. Oh, so it's like happening right now. Yeah. So there's there's wow. there's 36 people in the world walking around with this drug in their spinal fluid right now. Wow. And we don't know if they're better or not. But we will know soon. And that's that's huge. That's And that's like – so while that was happening – there's I'm sorry to go on a tangent here. But there's a no, – That's an, what we're here for. That's what you're here for. <laughs> we're all tangents. about the tangents. There's a, there's a really horrible muscular disease of children called spinal muscular atrophy, and it's actually the most common genetic form of death in kids. And it, kids are born normal, and then they start having, like, motor dysfunction. Like, they learn to walk, and then they start not being able to walk, and then eventually they can't breathe and they die, and it's horrible. And so kids with the worst of these types, uh, spinal muscular atrophy type 1, they die, like, before the age of 5 or 6 or something. And Ionis, this company, had a, a different drug targeting a different gene, but the same kind of chemistry, same kind of delivery, same idea. And that drug was being tested in a more advanced study, what we call phase three study, which is actually does this drug make people better or not. And the FDA last year in 2016 halted that trial early because it was working so well. And they said it's working so well that it's unethical to keep people on placebo, right, to, like, to right. see if the drug worked or not. It's, it's so great. We ha- it's unethical to keep these kids not getting active drug. Right. Wow. So that drug got, appro- it got approved this year um, for spinal muscular atrophy type 1. So there's there's great hope that this kind so of So how approach, well was it helping? Well, the kids are alive. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> okay. And we they sh- and they so that we have pretty anecdotal data on this. Like they did some they walked a little better and stuff, but like 
you know, we don't have a complete picture yet and won't for years probably, but like you can get on YouTube and there's moms who are like, you know, my kid should be dead by now. And here he is relearning how to walk and ride a bike. Like, so in some cases anyway, at least anecdotally, it looks really great. And on the whole, the data was enough to convince the FDA that it's, you know, it's got to get moved forward. And I mean, I'd love to have that happen in Huntington's that the trials that are ongoing now are so awesome that the FDA swoops in and says, hurry up and give this to everybody. So that's, that's what's most exciting. And then, so you asked about my work, and as I said, I was involved in, in that, uh, that, uh, that work with Ionis uh, a lot during my PhD, uh, and subsequently I've been working with them now that I'm at Western. Um, and I've been, I sort of switched attention because we kind of, like, that got so advanced, it went off to the clinic, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a real doctor, I'm not a neurologist, so, like, I don't, I don't really have anything to contribute to that trial getting run well. You're a real doctor to me. <laughs> That's how my mom introduces me to people. She's really? like, my daughter's a doctor, but I mean, not a real doctor, but... <laughs> Seems like a legit thing. I don't know. I wouldn't go to school that long and tell you that. That's true. <laughs> There's definitely very, some very sad for me. <laughs> definitely some selection pressure for sort of morons who are too dumb to stop going to school. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so like that the, the human stuff was so exciting, but it's not really something. It's not my work. Right? I don't do that. Um, and so I kind of again I had another sort of reflection point, which sort of like, well, what do I want to do now? And there are there are other approaches to that kind of silencing that won't only silence Huntington in the brain. They would silence it all over the body, and that's that's not what Ionis is doing, but that's a possibility for future trials. And one of the things about Huntington that makes it like a really interesting science problem but a really crappy like disease problem is that we basically don't know what this gene does. Mm. So the gene, you know, it could have been in some like really simple gene that like tells cells how to break down sugar or something, something we could like easily understand, but the Huntington gene is totally mysterious. It's conserved like slime mold, have like amoebas have a Huntington gene, fruit flies, sea urchins, fish, dogs, us, like everybody's got a Huntington gene. It's found in every cell of your body, not just your brain cells, which would be an easy explanation for why they die, but it's not it. So every cell we've looked at has Huntington in it. Um, and so I sort of said, well, we should probably try to figure out like what happens when we get rid of Huntington in cells. If it's so important, like maybe we should check that out. So once the once the silencing stuff went off to the human trials, I basically kind of redirected my lab a little bit and said, let's start like, genetic term is knockout, but like, let's start getting rid of this Huntington gene. If you do it globally, like if you get, it's easy to do this, it's relatively easy to do this in mice, it's established thing to do. But if you make mice that have no Huntington gene at all, they're never born, like they, they their, their fetuses don't develop and they resorb into their mother's uterine wall and they're never born. Wow. And s- yeah, right. That seems <laughs> seems bad. It seems like it's important. <laughs> yes, and there's there's some data like from brain cells, especially early in development, when the brain is still developing. If we shut Huntington off, those brain cells that don't have it on will die. We don't think that happens in adults. We don't think, um, but we definitely need to check those things out. So I've I've switched my lab to like, I mean, a because I'm just curious, and one of the best ways to figure out what a gene does is just get rid of it. You know, embryos that are never born are not very interesting to study because there's nothing to study. So we, we started making mice that lack Huntington in different organs. So, like, we've made mice that don't have Huntington in their liver. And, like, there's probably not huge problems in liver and Huntington's disease, but there's a Huntington gene there. And so now I have mice that have Huntington gene everywhere and they're born, which is handy, but they don't have any Huntington in their liver. So I can, I can, I can study their liver and poke and prod it and, like, try to figure out what's different about this liver compared to a normal liver. And maybe that, those differences will teach us about what the Huntington gene is doing.
today we're talking about neurobiology with Western's own Dr. Jeff Carroll. So I want to, I mean, I, every guest we have, we start talking about pop culture, but I have a great segue because you were a subject of a 2012 documentary. And do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And how was that experience? You know, was, when I was in grad school, I did a lot of like press and TV interviews and stuff about Huntington's. I was really into raising awareness. I guess in theory, I'm still into raising awareness. Yeah. I mean, you're on a much lesser show like us. But. <laughs> right. It's really been downhill. So, yeah. yeah. We, we just got the toilets working. So. We did. So I got this call. Actually, I just moved from Boston. I was doing a, a postdoctoral fellowship at Mass General and uh, Harvard Medical School, and I um, was living in Boston with my family. And I got a phone call from this guy, director and uh, the producer of the movie, and they were say they were saying, you know, we've decided to do this film project on Huntington's disease, and specifically the like decision to either test or not test for the mutation. Uh, and we're going to pick a couple families, and we're going to follow them around, and we're going to film them. And I was like, no, like, ugh. But uh, John Zaritsky and Kevin Eastwood, the filmmakers, were amazing, and they did a great job with it. I mean, I've only seen it twice. I saw it once when they brought it to our house to show it to us before they showed it to anyone else, and I saw the premiere, and I don't watch it since then. It's like listening to yourself on, like, a voicemail or something. It's really awkward. It's the worst. So bad. Yeah, Jordan doesn't listen to our show, but, you know. (laughs) Someone has to. (laughs) I have to. Every single time, Jordan. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, yeah, so I haven't seen a lot, but when I did see it, I remember it being quite good. Um, And they covered (laughs) the It's It's called Do You Really Want to Know? Came out in 2012, documentary. Yeah, and we showed it here at the Pickford one time. Uh, We've been talking about doing that again. Uh, Pickford's a great theater here in town, and we'd we'd like to show it again. It's Um, right next to the Spark Museum where we're we're recording right now. It's an awesome movie theater. And we had a a great crowd and people really interested in these issues. You know, it's not just Huntington's. It's... You know, as we learn more and more about genetics, maybe there won't be things as kind of obvious and, like, dangerous as Huntington's disease. But, like, everybody's got some kind of genetic skeletons in their closet, and eventually we'll find all those. And people have to learn to live with genetic risk and maybe not quite so extreme as HD. But, like, you know, the example of BRCA2 mutations and people, you know, women who have these mutations have a much increased uh, incidence of breast and ovarian cancer. And it's sort of like, how do you cope with that? You know, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's sort of, I hate to say this even slightly, but sort of in a way even less extreme than Huntington's in the sense that it's 100% fatal in, uh, in the case of I don't HD. think that that's unfair. I think that's a fact. <laughs> that's <right. laughs> Go ahead and say that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have like all these like other mutations which are obviously much less severe and their sort of implications and, and we, I mean everybody's, once they have the genome sequenced, which mine's online, you can go look at it if you want. Everyone else will have theirs soon and you can, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Were we so, talking about a movie? Sorry, I got yeah, distracted. Yeah, we were talking, well, well, I was talking about like, so, so you have this documentary that followed your family eating dinner. Are there other instances in pop culture and movies and TV and comics, I don't know, and somewhere that kind of talks about either this disease specifically or any other kind of disease that has a good representation of the neuroscience happening or a bad representation of the neuroscience happening? Yeah, so the the one thing, the one person people used to know from Huntington's disease was Woody Guthrie, like the great American folk singer from yeah. the like, this land is your land, this land is my land. Yeah, um, I know that oh, song. Yeah. He, so Woody Guthrie that wrote that died of Huntington's in the 70s, and that was kind of the most, if anyone knew of Huntington's, that was why. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song about him dying in a hospital, and 
so that's kind of the one connection people used to have. But there's subsequently there's been a lot more. Um, there was a so I asked I always ask my students like who's heard of Huntington's disease and like nowadays they all raise their hands and I'm like that's weird. Thirteen. <laughs> They're like right yes exactly <laughs> on house. They they read your Wikipedia page before they got into <laughs> yeah, class. They probably. already know. Yeah. They probably did. No so yeah that that's right. Thirteen the character from House had they had this whole big storyline of Huntington's disease right. Yeah. What. Wait, you know a reference and I don't. That's right. Oh, you win. So that doesn't have to deal with Star, Star Trek. Trek. <laughs> Was it on Star Trek, Jeff? No. Uh, it's useless. <laughs> useless. But it was like a major storyline, right? Like, because she went through the whole genetic testing, and it was it was a very bad representation because the house part of it was a disaster. Because I think he like tested her without her knowledge or yeah. something. What? Which you is can't test people without that's extremely not kosher, but unethical. Um, People do it all the time, actually. Oh, it's a but TV show. What? So. Wait, what? Well, the, what do you mean? The genetic test is pretty trivial, technically, right? Yeah. So if if you want to get it from a proper doctor, you have to go through all these counseling appointments, and there's like a protocol they're at least supposed to follow. Um, but a lot of people don't want to do that, and there's a lot of labs, including you know, there's lots of labs in China you can find on the internet that will like do whatever genetic test you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's stories like just stories I hear from the community about people who's like test their kids because they couldn't handle not knowing or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. like, well going to have to handle it until they're 18 and decide they want to get tested. But, um, yeah, so it's a tricky time because it's it's technically trivial to test someone for this mutation. Mm. So you can't test your kids, right? Yeah, we did, actually. So – and this is part of what the movie's about. Our our kids were pre-screened when they were embryos. So we did a procedure called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD. And what happens is that you go through like an in vitro fertilization cycle where they like retrieve the eggs and then they have them in a dish and they like fertilize them in a dish and they, they let them sit there until they're like eight cells and then they take one of those cells and they go and they do a single cell test of the mutation on the fourth day. Like, okay, you know, embryos one, two, and five are like good to go. And you have to make a snap decision. And, and Megan and I, my wife and I decided, I think we had two, we had two embryos that were unaffected and they were like, got to do or die. And so we're like, uh, sure, plant them both. Yeah. And now we have twins. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's... And they do kickboxing with Tori. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of them sort of does kickboxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I forget about the HD thing. Like when, I, when they were like embryos, I was like always thought about like, oh, we got to have kids that aren't affected by this horrible disease. And then they're, you know, then they're kids. And then you just, you're dealing with all the kids stuff. And that's, that's kind of the full-time gig so yeah Yeah. so we can do screening you can also do there's other ways that are a little less crazy like the ivf thing you can do some you can do prenatal screening so you can wait till you're x weeks pregnant and do amniocentesis and get enough dna that way to do a test that's tricky because um you have to be willing to terminate the pregnancy if it's positive which is you know that's a tricky question for people yeah absolutely yeah yeah especially it's not like a you know a fatal infant onset disease it's like this it's person gonna... would be fine for 40 years or 50 years or something. Exactly. And that's a hard decision to make. Right. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. But so we... you did not have to make that decision no. because you th- a forward thinker. Yeah. <laughs> we we often tell the kids they, they cost us $20,000, which they did. Uh, luckily, yeah. we got two of them. But we often tell them, like, you're $10,000 in the hole because that's how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you want that candy bar? You know you owe me $10,000. $10,000. <laughs> I can oh. see them taking that really well. Yeah, no, they, they're, they're like, probably good sports about it. Kickbox. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty used to like get us ribbing them about it. So it's just, you know, for them, it's just very much part of their world. They kind of know about it. But for like other kids who are from families that are less open about it, I think it gets to be this like deep, dark, scary secret. And then like that creates its own crap, just because mm-hmm. nobody's talking about anything that's real. And so we, you know, maybe we err on the side of talking too much about it. But we just decided like. 
I don't want that. You know, some of the worst parts of those things, those situations are like just the fear and the like yeah. hiding. And, and, and the anticipation. Right. Yeah. And and that's what I love about like talking to you and actually even reading your Wikipedia page. It's, you're so open about that. It kind of takes away from my own neuroses of like hypochondria. So when you just like get it out there, you realize, yeah. oh, you know, like we're, we know about this stuff now. So and, and I wanted to bring up a couple things in, in TV and movies. Like you have like beaches hmm. and you have like these stories about like, oh, my, the mother died and then therefore the daughter will die. And, right. And like they don't actually go into what that sickness is. It's just this like weird, vague, it's something that's genetic. People die. Right. And that's <laughs> that's how it used to be. And now, now you know, I meet kids and it's cool because now – a colleague and I from London do this website to inform patients and families about about research news called um, the website's called hdbuzz.net. And so we we write like like short readable updates on like current research findings cuz you know before that it was like this thing cures Huntington's and you have to read the article that it's in a fruit fly like yeah. you know? <laughs> right. yeah. and like with Next a drug <laughs> yeah with yeah. a drug that will never make it into humans you know like so we started for that reason and you know I, I interact with a lot of kids like younger people that are consuming our content like I go to a camp every year in, in Washington DC where a bunch of kids who are affected by HD come together and stuff and uh, these kids like they're just growing up much more just because the internet and our site and other people's websites um, they're like they're getting a lot better information and they're kind of like leapfrog and their parents are just like, okay, this is like this thing in my life and it sucks, but I got to just deal with it. And, right. you know, there's consequences to testing and getting a positive result, but like you can also plan your life better and, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Interestingly, when I was at that camp, you were asking about how rare it would be for Huntington's people to meet each other. Uh, when I was at that camp, I got a lot of questions about that as well, and I could not put two and two together. And then I realized I was at a camp full of, like, 18 to 22-year-olds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're like, what if we had babies? Basically, what were the- hilarious. <laughs> the only reason you're here is to help us with our baby-making issue. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. That is awesome. I think that's a good place to stop. I want to thank you for coming and thank you for coming to the Spark Museum late at night and talking with us about your work and this disease. And it's just like the fascinating work that you're doing. It's cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org, streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. Our producer is Regina Barb-DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc When I rap, you think Iodine, nitrate, activate Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in Careful, careful with those ingredients They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground